This is Chris Martin, and me and my buddy Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Everything, host an NBA podcast called The Mismatch. They call it The Mismatch because I'm awesome and Kevin is a gigantic nerd. No, no, that's not why at all, Chris. They call it The Mismatch because I have a brain and you're a loudmouth bozo. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch. Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. <laughs> Chris, we do care. So don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing in the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David, listener Simone E. Simone. One of our favorite listeners asks a question related to this weekend's Kentucky Derby. Okay. If Brian or David could name a racehorse, he asks, what would that name be and why? Um, dang. I feel like that you have to find, I feel like the, like the traditional move is to go sentimental to dedicate it to someone else in some way right like you name it after uh like you know one of your like your wife's grandparents or you know something like that or you just go the you know job security route and name the horse like pride of the celtics or something like that you know but (laughs) i don't know if i were gonna go i mean you know i don't know people listening to this are even aware but like when brian and i lived together we jokingly until it was no longer a joke, just referred to our apartment as Fort Awesome. And I mean, it was, you know, yep. on the fourth fourth or fifth floor, there was a, you know, there was some like aesthetic reason for it, but mostly it was just, a, it just sounded like so ridiculous. We loved it. I would probably go in that direction. I would probably go the in the Fort Awesome strain of horse names, you know, Horse Awesome or, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, uh, or like Super Horse, uh, uh, like, so, so have it like like Techno Horse 2000. That would be a good Ooh. one. <laughs> <laughs> just so it sounds very up to the moment. Yeah. With the, with or the actually just kids will like. retro, yes. Horse Awesome is a fantastic name for a, for a racehorse. Because they're all like one degree off from making any sense to the average person, right? You have mm-hmm. to explain. 
Well, it was it was a good pun when it was an in joke between me and the trainers, but then we had to alter it for this. Re- yeah, I mean that that might, that might work. It's an amazing race over the weekend. Eighty to one long shot. Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. and a lot of people online were putting up the video. First of all, they had this fantastic video which actually showed Rich Strike's path through the whole field all the way to the win at the end, which is a really just cool bit of overhead technology over overhead view of the camera. But then a lot of people were doing the listen to this fantastic call by Larry Kalmus, who called the race for NBC. And this is one of those instances where I went, I'm not casting any aspersions on the call on NBC. I just don't know enough here. Like, I'm not sure I could tell you bad horse race call from good (laughs) horse race call, or even any of the gradations between, you know, Vin Scully, Kirk Gibson, home run of the world series, or, you know, something else. I just don't know. And I feel it's okay to be like, that was great fun to watch. That was an amazing race. I just don't have an immediate opinion here. Sounds good to me, <laughs> right? But I don't, yeah, I don't have the knowledge here. To it's, just you're right. And basically, in any sport outside of the, major, the, the, the big three, I mean, I, I think you probably even can put hockey in this category. I mean, I think three is the right number. If you just, if someone put out a tweet and they were like, listen to this, like best, you know, what is one of the top five calls ever in the sport? I think I would just believe them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of have to take it at face value. You don't know the the sport well enough. And horse racing is it's a very particular thing. It's more like, you know, auctioneering than it is like, you know, calling a sport a, a sport in the way that you and I traditionally think about it. Yeah, very specific art. But I just know from all the Twitter opinions about announcers that I see day to day that a lot of people are really wrong. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't really think that, did you? So I don't right. know. Anyway, I'm just not, no, I'm I'm just not casting no dis- the, the distinction between best call ever and just like not a good call is vanishingly thin as far as I'm concerned when it comes to any any sport that I don't watch. I also want to uh, draw your attention to a sentence from Simone E. Simone's note to us. Mm-hmm. I was the bugler in 2004 at the Oaklawn racetrack in Hot Springs, Arkansas. What? And it was really interesting. Yeah, yes. I'm much more interested in the story about how, like, the part that would not be interesting to Simone Simone is presumably more interesting to the rest of us than, like, the day there at the track. I mean, maybe not. Maybe there was some crazy backstage goings on, you know? Maybe there was some, uh, I don't even know what it would be, some uh, mob mobsters backstage, a lot of people, you know, illicitly shooting up horses. Like, I don't, I don't even know what the intrigue would be, but I think becoming a bugler at a horse racing track is a journey that I'd be very interested in. <laughs> How has that not already been assigned by the Oxford American? <laughs> what was the horse racing show on HBO that got canceled because the horses died? Oh, Luck. You remember yes. that? I wonder there yes. might have been. I wonder if there was a Bugler storyline they had planned for that before it Ooh. got shut down. <laughs> nice, colorful supporting character, the Bugler at the track. Coming up on today's show, audio and notes from a packed weekend in sports. From the Formula One gridwalk to an NBA announcer, another NBA announcer, vexed by those meddling referees. And then in (laughs) non-sports news, we'll talk about the monster Politico scoop out of the Supreme Court. All that more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer Erica Cervantes here. David, I don't know if you know this from reading sports Twitter, but the Miami Grand Prix was over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Did you have that sensation you have with soccer tweets 
<laughs> where you see a few and it takes you just a second to figure yes. out what's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. And I have a lot of sympathy for those people because I was, you know, like the one dude tweeting wrestling, live tweeting wrestling shows in most people's timelines that I knew for a long time. But yeah, it was, um, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of racing tweets that I was not expecting <laughs> to say the least. It, it really has entered the soccer zone in one respect. Don't want to overstate Formula One's popularity, blah, blah, blah. But in the what is actually happening right now that I, that I don't know about zone, that is Formula One right now. Your friends mm-hmm. are tweeting about it and you're not exactly sure what's going on. We've done we've done Formula One content like three out of the last four episodes. I mean, we're 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 basically a Formula One podcast at this point. I don't know we if we are. can. I don't know if we Look can. Look out, stand, Kevin Clark. Yeah, I don't know if we can like like st- take a step back from the Twitter timeline and point. You know, I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think that we're part of the timeline now. Big hit for people this weekend was the Formula One Grid Walk. This is carried out by Martin Brundle, former race car driver who's now a Sky Sports commentator essentially the color analyst of the race. And since 1997, Martin Brundle has been leaving the announcer's booth before the race, going down where the actual cars are about to start from with a microphone and an earpiece and doing what's called the grid walk, which is kind of half race preview, half red carpet celebrity reporting. I was texting with Kevin this morning. He said, imagine if at the Masters Golf Tournament, all the celebrities and media were kibitzing on the first tee minutes before the tournament started. And then Tiger showed up to tee off. We were like, oh, we got to get out of here. (laughs) We need to clear out to let this man play golf. And then further imagine, David, if CBS sent Nick Faldo down into that scrum of celebrities and told him to try to interview people. That's essentially what the grid walk is Mm -hmm. before a Formula One race. So in Miami, Brundle is running around with his microphone and headset, and he runs into Venus and Serena Williams. We're going to play some audio here. I want you to note especially how (laughs) reluctant Martin Brundle is to carry out the task of trying to get a word from the Williams sisters before the race begins. Um, Right. I don't know. I don't know if I could stand the rejection, to be honest. I don't know if I can stand the rejection here, but uh, I'll, 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 do, I'll do this for you. Venus, Martin Brando, Sky, how are you? Uh, really good to see you two on the grid again. Uh, are you cheering for Lewis? There's DJ Khaled there saying hello to the Williams sisters. Nice to see you. Serena, good to see you. So uh, tell us. What do you think of this event here in Miami? Oh, we love having Lewis and all the drivers in Miami, so wishing them luck. It's the first time of many. Hey. Oh, what's the question? <laughs> no, it doesn't really matter. Just uh, good to hear. Nice, nice to talk to you, actually, but uh, we'll uh, want to back down. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what happened there? Lewis, of course, referring to Lewis Hamilton. But he was, Brunda was sitting there and he asked a question. Williams, Venus Williams gave an answer and then they were, they just kind of walked together for several seconds. <laughs> Venus was like, am I doing something wrong here? Did I, <laughs> is there another question you wanted me to ask? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that was um, that was uncomfortable. I liked how he was was he was he assuming he would be rejected just because he, he didn't think he would be recognized to the degree that he's normally recognized at such walks. Yeah, there's there's video going around from last year where he tried to get Megan the Stallion to offer a comment <laughs> before the race, and there was definitely a we have bodyguards here, and who are you, <laughs> Sky Sports commentator? This I think is the, a, the equivalent. It, I think would be like if you told Chris Collinsworth to do this. But before an NFL game in London, mm-hmm. so you had British celebrities, and then Chris Collinsworth was chasing them around the sidelines, going, "Yeah, Hi, Chris well, Collinsworth." Chris, yeah, it would. I mean, just honestly, it would be like Chris Collinsworth, or, or, or Chris Collinsworth. I guess is a former professional athlete, so I guess there's some. I mean, it would be like like give. I mean, even if you give Jim Nance uh, the job at like a Super Bowl, just interviewing celebrities as they walked in, I would say a solid number. Like seventy five percent of the celebrities would be like, I don't know who this guy is, right? I mean, and it would just be kind of an awkward situation. Although he's a pro, he could probably. I mean, he could probably make do. Well, it's but, a little bit. Remember when Eminem and Brent Musburger were brought together? Yeah, <laughs> in that memorable that memorable meeting. It's like two different planes of celebrity. There's celebrity. And yeah. then there's sports announcer celebrity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they cross over and sometimes not so much. Yeah, but the real story, though, is this is just a, a signal or a, or symbolic of the expansion of the sport, right? I mean, that you have this, the legend, you know, a, a legendary journalist or, or a well-known a well-known journalist who's just, or commentator who's just not going to be recognized by anyone who people actually want to hear talk. Or any <laughs> this of the, is the, good news this, for this, Formula yes, One. Yeah, Exactly. We have big stars who are not necessarily familiar with the Sky Sports commentating team. Yeah. Uh, Brundle also saw David Beckham, who I bet did know exactly who Martin Brundle is, uh, yelled to get David Beckham's attention, got ignored, started taking this you know, separate route around the grid there, eventually cornered David Beckham and got his interview. Here's what that turned out to be. David, Martin Brundle, Sky, can I have a quick word with you? Can we have a quick word? Of course. Yeah, we need to just probably move out of the way, but you know sport in Miami well. You've got a football team here, hoping to build a new stadium. Yeah. What do you reckon to all this? It's amazing. It's what Miami does best. You know, it's a sporting town, uh, an entertainment town, um, and I think today's incredible. It's going to be amazing. Good. Who's your money on? We'll see. <laughs> all right. Oops, the anthem. Seems like a lot of work to get Miami's a great sports town. <laughs> This is going to be a great race. Like the gold here is not what the celebrity is actually going to say. It's Martin right. Brundle running around with a microphone because that's yes. funny. That is incredibly funny. And, and nobody wants to answer. I mean, this is a very, obviously I'm not a, a Formula One viewer. Um, if this exists in other. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, uh, don't explode any illusions here on the podcast. David, go ahead. I'm not sure how unusual this setup is. I know they do this at the races a lot, but I don't know if there's other sports where I should be familiar with it from, but nobody wants to be interviewed when they're on their way to their seats. Right. There's like, there's no greater moment of anxiety in a, at a sporting arena than the walk between <laughs> the front entrance and your seat. You're not sure if you should go to the bathroom on the way. You're not sure if you should be grabbing concessions then or get to your seats first and double back for concessions. You don't, you don't know if there's going to be some fool sitting in your seat when you get there and you have to have an awkward thing in front of your family. You know, you don't know. It's the whole thing is, you know, is, is just uncomfortable. You just want to sit down. You've been commuting presumably for a while. You want to get it, you want to take a load off. And then there's just some dude coming up. Of course, you're going to answer in one word answers. You know, it's just like, unless, especially when it's a sort of, <laughs> it's sort of just 
freewheeling a question in some of these that are being dished up. Yeah, I'm not totally sure David Beckham was trying to get to his seat so much <laughs> as like you're going. I think the red carpet is not quite the red carpet because the red carpet is orderly. The celebrities come at intervals where here it's like you're just wandering through a red carpet that's just a mess of celebrities going both ways. But I think you want, I think the celebrity, the grid walk is a chance to be a celebrity. Like you're down there to be there. There's photographers taking your picture. You're visiting with the drivers, taking pictures with the cars, that kind of thing. So there is some, there is something there, but yes, David Beckham probably wanted to grab some popcorn and find out where he was sitting for the race. (laughs) Uh, Brundle thought he had scored a really big interview. Kansas city chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. However, Mid-interview, Brundle realizes, ooh, maybe this isn't exactly who I thought it was. Amazing to be allowed right in the middle of the competitors just before the race starts. Yeah, now you can see they locked in. It reminds me of myself. But uh, the real focus. Okay, it's not Patrick. That's why he ignored me in the beginning. But what is your name, sir? Paulo Bancaro. Right, okay. Well, I thought I was talking to somebody else. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> whatever <laughs> that is soon to be my NBA lottery goodness. pick Paolo Bancaro my goodness and no one yeah. is your piece case I did well, I think it, with that? the message arrived mid-interview oh that you were not interviewing Pat he had been yelling Patrick Patrick yeah, I'm sure they were in the booth saying he's not doing this right this is not <laughs> what I think it is Bancaro um, was happy to turn was happy to turn around and give an interview mm-hmm which is very, very confusing. <laughs> wow, that's really uncomfortable. Thankfully, he, he, he you know, gave us more to talk about than just that scene. Don't you think American sports should steal this concept? Sure. Can we have Collinsworth like knocking on the doors of luxury suites <laughs> 20 minutes before the game starts trying to get a celebrity to come out and give a quick word? Why are you here? Are you looking forward to the football game that you have come to? They should just combine it with the ticket taking process, right? Like the like the VIP ushers, you get down and you just like you show your ID or you show your tickets or whatever. But I think the most important thing, I mean the most exciting thing that anybody cares about is what seat what tickets did you get? Right? Both in real <laughs> life but also celebrities. It's just like Sure. Oh, oh, uh Mr. and Mrs. Beckham. Uh, what ticket what, what seats did you get? Oh, row 2. Huh. Huh. I think that's one row behind Jay-Z. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, so we actually get the little gradations of celebrity. Yeah, we get to see them reacting to like, you know, their place in the hierarchy. I think that could be fun. Brundle tweeted uh, after the race, there's a reason why I've never watched back an F1 gridwalk in a quarter century of doing them. You have no idea how much I dislike doing them, but somehow those crazy moments have defined my professional career. Oh, well, that's the way it is. Thanks to RJ Young for sending us that. Uh, David, the celebrity thing was really interesting for the Miami Grand Prix, because I got to say, I'm sort of unmoved by a certain level of celebrity attending a sporting event. Mm -hmm. Patrick Mahomes is cool. Patrick Mahomes is awesome. But Patrick Mahomes was also at the Mavs jazz game the other night in Dallas. So it may just be that Patrick Mahomes has some free time here in the offseason. <laughs> he enjoys going to sporting events so much. He's just following around arrived. the sporting calendar, like anywhere, any wherever the big game, wherever the big game takes him, he's uh, he's going to follow. Yeah, and the other one I saw was in one of the emails in my inbox this morning was that Dwayne Wade was at the race. 
Huh. I mean, can we can we go ahead and say that Dwayne Wade has kind of entered the Ric Flair zone of showing up everywhere? Yeah. Remember when Ric Flair was like, wow, the Nature Boy's here. And then you realize the last three sporting events, the Nature Boy had been at every one. Is it? Like, yeah. I mean, well, that's my only, cool, but. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the only point of interest is that you like chose that over the Kentucky Derby, right? <laughs> right. That's an interesting, that's an interesting yeah. choice. Uh, Michelle Obama and George Lucas. Now, when they were at the F1, now I'm in. Now I'm in. That's, that's interesting. That's different. That's a different. Yeah tear a surprise appearance Mm -hmm. we had another edition of who wants to be a formula one analyst all right let's do it this time was jeff van gundy noted nba analyst setting up a race promo on abc the other day listen to how jeff van gundy weighs in on america's new pastime hey mike i'm not a betting man but if i was in that road course in Miami, I'm going Lewis Hamilton, without question. Wow, I didn't know you were this into it. Oh, it's in my bones. Way to go out on the limb. He's a star. Duh. He's like LeBron James of Formula One. So the joke Van Gundy is making is that I'm going to give the most obvious and generic F1 take possible. I like Lewis Hamilton, mm-hmm. seven-time world champion. Yeah. Tied for most championships ever. It's kind of like saying, how about you know LeBron James? I think he's going to be really good this year. <laughs> the only problem is that Lewis Hamilton's car has actually sucked this year, I know, from <laughs> consuming the Ringers F1 content. Oh, so also like the LeBron James comparison, I guess. <laughs> yes. I mean, like in April, Van Gundy be like, you know, I think LeBron's going to win another title this year. Not so much. Thanks to Lee for that one. Speaking of the NBA, Dave. A few notes from the playoffs over the weekend. I regret to report that the refs have screwed up another announcer's last second call. Oh, I didn't know that's where this was going to go. Okay, let's 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 hear it. This is from Celtics Bucks Game Three. You know this, but if people don't, the situation was there were four point six seconds left in the game. The Bucks are up two points. The Celtics Marcus Smart is on the free throw line, and Smart only has one free throw left. Can't get two points with one free throw. So he's going to try to miss the free throw on purpose. Mm -hmm. The Celtics get the rebound and tie the game. It actually worked. He missed the free throw. The Celtics get the rebound. They start playing volleyball right next to the basket. Listen to how ESPN's Dave Pash called this sequence. Now, remember, if you do that, you have to hit the rim. And he does hit the the rim. rim. Smart. Got it. Puts it up. No. Tip won't go. Williams. Another try. Horford. No. He tips it in, but it's afterwards. The game is over. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. He's sitting courtside, and Dave Pash, with his own eyes, sees that Al Horford's tip in that would have tied the game was too late. You heard what he said. The game is over. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh, David. Here come the referees to review the play. (laughs) Now, you cannot convince me that this does not absolutely screw with an announcer's mind. Oh, yeah. Because they know what they saw. But then they start to think, what if that man in the striped shirt looks into a little box and he finds a frame of video that shows that what I saw with my own eyes is actually wrong. Mm-hmm. So we go from the game is over to this. Listen to how Pash immediately starts hedging the outcome 
after calling the play. It looked like the tip by Horford was after the buzzer sounded. That would have tied the game, but it appeared that that was after the buzzer, meaning Milwaukee wins game three. They're going to go to the monitor to make sure. Now listen to that. We've gone from the game is over to the conditional, it looked like the shot was late. It appeared the shot was late. <laughs> then we have to wait for 30 more seconds and for the refs to come back and say, well, nope, he was right. Shot was late. The game is over. That's just wild. It's hilarious to me. You think it's all, do you think he's, he's, he's trying to be as, as, like judicious as possible, knowing that it might get there's a sliver of a chance it might get overturned. He doesn't want to himself sound at odds with, well, I guess reality at that point. Or is it? Do you think that there's a degree to which he can't be? He doesn't want. He cannot be seen to be like trying to one up the referees. You know what I mean? Like, do you think he would get in trouble if he was just like, well, no, I saw it with my own eyes. That call is incorrect. I think there've been enough pot shots at the refs over the last couple of weeks to can, to sort of suggest that you can get away with a little bit more, mm-hmm. even though we know the networks don't love to do that as a matter of course, I think, I think it's the first thing you said, he's 99% sure, but there's this 1% sliver of doubt. Yeah. And so you're leaving yourself an out to say, well, what if it didn't? But of course yeah. your whole job as a sports announcer is to see things faster than normal human beings can see them. And then even more miraculous, get the words out of your mouth before people like you and I even see what happened. Sure. That's the job. And they have taken away a fundamental part of the job because you do it. You do it as Dave Pash did perfectly. And then it's like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, something else happening. Plus you just have to wait 30 seconds. So instead of the game is over, the Bucks win an exciting and fairly controversial game three. You're sitting there going, oh, we're going to wait 30 seconds. Hubie's going to do the replay. And then, eh, okay, it's over. I'm not sure in the grand scheme of things how much, how much just the, the, the ridiculous situation that these announcers are being put in should factor in to the rulemaking process. But it kind of feels like they should factor it in a little bit. I, I mean, think the, part they're of expressing what we're thinking, right? Right. That everything is being held up in a very weird way. And again, I don't think there's, I don't think checking the last shot of the game, just to be sure, is the worst thing in the world. No. It seems like a fairly correctable moment in the game of all times. Game's over. You can do it. But it does seem like the condition of the announcer is the condition of all of us, where it's like we can no longer trust what we see on the court. And have to wait to go into this weird, was it real or was it not real state that the that the referees are putting us in? Right. Yeah, so know, it's not you, it's not how do? it's with the with the whole with the whole. I'd say fewer replays, generally speaking. Well, but how would you call, how I, would you call the end of the game? How would you call the end of that game? I think Ian Eagle said on the pod the other day, you just call it, and you hope that when they replay that for the next twenty years, if yeah. it's a huge moment, they just clip it. <laughs> right where you call it make yeah. no reference at all to the fact that it's about to be replayed yeah but and do you maybe you do you talk about it being re, like reviewed in the process of the review i would almost just call the game and move on and if and if it and bar and if it if it did get reversed 
let that be a shock that that you know interrupts Whoa. the post game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll so never just, believe it. With a straight face, just like wow, what a game! Bucks win game three. <laughs> yeah, have a chance to take a commanding lead in game four, and then if it doesn't, just just don't have the cameras on the referees at all. It's the referees are reversing the decision. Whoa. <laughs> Would be more dramatic. Speaking of important subjects, can we talk about ESPN's bumper music? Oh, man. Here we go. Are you as uh, weirded out by this as I am? Watching a playoff game, bumper music means the music they use to go to commercial. And we hear such songs as Taken to the Streets by yes, the Doobie okay. Brothers. I didn't know if you were talking about some theme music that I was trying to remember. Yeah, you're talking about how it's just like Yacht Rock every time we go to commercial. What the hell is that? I don't the know. The Boys Are Back in Town was the other one I heard over the weekend. By the way, both of those songs came out in 1976, it turns out. Now, was that an, a, a really special year for someone in the ESPN production truck? That <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to recover on national television in front of I all of us? I don't know. Like, what? That's a good question. When you think of the NBA, what, do what? you think of the Doobie Brothers? I don't, I mean, somebody's making this decision on purpose, right? They've test marketed this thing, or they've used some sort of algorithm to determine this is what, I have no idea. We've seen the thing on Sunday Night Football and other places where they'll play a snippet of song and it's a tribute. If a singer has recently passed away, if it's a Minnesota mm-hmm. Vikings game, it'll be Prince, you know, something well, very city specific. Mm-hmm. This seems to be the opposite. This just seems to be like we're... We're running the serious 70s station no matter what has just happened in the game. Maybe it was just so impossible to pick music that would be deemed quote unquote appropriate based on so many different factors that they just outsourced the whole thing. Maybe we're just going to find out that they were like, yeah, we've started a new tradition where we just let Mike D'Antoni pick the music for this season. <laughs> How dare you insult Mike D'Antoni it's gonna, like No, it's just going to be like a former uh, former coach every year, someone who's not involved in the playoffs but intimately involved in the NBA, you know, <laughs> and just let, them, just let them have their own, like, you know, XM radio station for the, for the, for the, uh, for the month. If we're if if a former coach picked this, I'm guessing Don Nelson more than Mike D'Antoni. But okay, the funny um, one was uh, second quarter of the Maverick Suns game. They're going to commercial and they play Mr. Big Stuff. <laughs> now, Mr. Big Stuff came out in 1971, so at least it's not exactly the same year. But the two replays they run to break are Jay Crowder and Maxi Kleba laying up the ball. So we don't even get the little joke of Mr. Big Stuff, boom, replay of a slam dunk. We get Mr. Big Layup. <laughs> I just was like, what, what's happening here? It's really weird. And I'll tell you the weirdest part of it is the playoffs, and especially the playoffs this year, have had a wonderful urgency about them. We've had so many big games, so many great games. And then you're going to break, and those songs, and you know from our high school days that I had the dial over on KLUV. Mm-hmm. I was K-Love in my oldies. I was sure. not immune to, the, to that music. But those songs just destroy the urgency of the game. And I think you really, you do want a theme song. Like Turner is like, like we're, yeah, here we go. Oh, yeah. Even if it's not exciting, the theme song makes it exciting. No, we need John Tesh back in our lives. It's a, it, does, it makes you, it puts you in the moment. It, put, it, it reminds you what you're doing there. All right, one more thing on the sports weekend. 
News came down uh, from Turner Sports last Tuesday, David, that Turner has picked their number one NBA announcing team, which functionally means this is the team that's going to announce the Western Conference Finals. Okay. ESPN has the finals and the Eastern Conference Finals, so Mike Breen is number one. The second number one spot in pro basketball will go to the following. Kevin Harlan on play-by-play, Reggie Miller, and Stan Van Gundy. So we have a three-man okay. booth. Your thoughts on Turner and their new number one team? Um, I don't hate it. I mean, I'm not as I'm not as averse to the three-man booth as some people are. You know, I do. I think that it, yeah, a two-person booth at its best is probably a better option, but. You know, Van Gundy's been working a three-man booth for a long time. And I think Reggie Miller has been weirdly good. I mean, I think that he's I think that he's sort of come on at, the, at this this phase of his post-career career. career. Um, so he's wildly I, divisive, isn't he, on Twitter? I know every announcer is divisive on Twitter. Yeah, but, but I feel, but I feel like, Reggie is really either people are, and I don't know who people are even listening to him. It's the same as the Kentucky Derby thing. They're just mm-hmm. like, I hate this guy or I love this guy or whatever, but he really feels there's like, like a national. Well, NBA is just a weird thing. I mean, you know, Bill obviously talks about the announcers, NBA announcers a lot. Uh, and I defer to him. He watches more games than me. And obviously with the volume up, a ton more games than me, but I, but I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, the NBA obviously lends itself to a different sort of commentary. There's a little bit more of a, you have to be a little bit of a, have a little bit of like a comedy style to really be, to be a color commentator on TNT. You know, you gotta, you gotta have a sense of humor that you, they sometimes just will take you into in and out of like an hour of the game. <laughs> and, and it has to be, and it's all pretty free flowing, you know, it's not all setups and stuff like that. And also like, it probably this is perception, but I feel like there've been a lot of, NBA announcers that are sort of on the the B tier com- color commentators I'm talking about and a lot of them I mean a lot of ex players who just have really uneven like roller coaster rides of of careers you know I mean there's people that almost everybody starts off bad you know and then but and then people generally find a place and it's sort of like we talk about with with in football you know where there comes a point where like you I mean, like you're like being fresh and being excited is really good and then some at some point you're going to hit the you know the edge of the cliff where you're just not close enough to the game anymore and you become something else i feel like the the arc is is much shorter and much much less predictable in the nba um but i have been enjoying you know reggie in a vacuum been really enjoying reggie miller's work i want to go back and listen to him during a game because listen every time but really pay attention to what he says yeah you almost have to watch a game the second time because otherwise you're just consumed by the game mm-hmm the Harlan part is really interesting to me. I think Kevin Harlan's really, really good. He's 61. I can imagine him talked to him since this happened, but I can imagine what a cool thing this is to get at this oh, point yeah. in your career. Mm-hmm. He is, as he said on the pod the other day, he got his first NBA play-by-play announcing gig when he was 21. It's crazy. 40 years ago, he gets to the top of the mountain to call the conference finals. That's fantastic. That's really, really fantastic. So, I mean, I guess the the question is, especially when you do the three-man booth, you're obviously trying to make, you're you're altering, you're altering the existing unit to 
for the for the you know for the big for the big times. But where does this leave Ian Eagle though, right? Because he would have been the the number one. I mean, he would have been the runner up for this job. And I mean, you know, there's not a long tradition of double play by play person booths, but and yet he's you know the odd person out in this. You would think he would be the runner up. No, but I don't know that he was the runner up. I really don't. It might have been Brian Anderson, who's huh. also on Turner. But he should have been the runner-up. If you tell me Kevin Harlan and Ian Eagle are 1A, 1B in some order, I'm happy with that. Absolutely happy with that. Because they're, they almost are, are really good counterparts for play-by-play. Mm-hmm. Eagle, East Coast guy. Yeah. Harlan, Midwest guy. Eagle, very meta kind of humor, the puns, the way he thinks about comedy during a game. Harlan, much more populist, would you say? Yeah. yeah. A little bit of that populist style can still come out of nowhere with a joke, but they just they just function very different. They're very, very different. Yeah. And somebody's preference be. But to me, those are far and away the two best guys there. And with Breen, the three best guys calling NBA basketball play-by-play. Yeah. Agreed. The end. And so if it was anything different, the one thing I took uh, solace in from Turner is they are deciding this year to year. It's not like we do in football where it's pretty much a permanent number one team until something happens. So next year, they're going to go back and say, well, let's decide who gets to do the all-star game and gets to do the conference finals. <laughs> Is this going to be like the old football conversation where it's like, if you don't have a start, if you, if you have two starting quarterbacks, you don't have any starting quarterbacks. <laughs> we gonna- it's okay with announcing, right? I think we'll, <laughs> well, forget but, could they, is it, is there, are they leaving open the option to just yank Harlan at halftime and put Ian Eagle no. in the game? <laughs> <laughs> you see him in the, you see him sitting in the stands oddly. I think we're going to give, I think we're give Harlan the, the, bullpen, the full yeah. conference finals, but no, I kind of want to, you know, let him trade off. I think that'd I be that's a good contrast to styles. But like I said, I just want to make sure that's the case. David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. Today's entry, David comes from Brandon James Anderson. He directs us to this morning's scoop from Adrian Wojnarowski. According to Woj's sources, Denver Nuggets star Nikola Jokic has been voted MVP for a second consecutive season. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Um, Joel Embiid can still win MVP if Mike Pence does the right thing. (laughs) Love that. If you mused about a legitimate use of executive power, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. 
Viore Clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, in the notebook dump, David, let us talk about the Supreme Court scoop. This was last Monday night. It lit up the old text between Curtis and Shoemaker. Politico published a giant and very unusual scoop. Mm -hmm. Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward reported that, quote, the Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade decision according to an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, circulated inside the court and obtained by Politico. As Gerstein and Ward write, no draft decision in the modern history of the court has been disclosed publicly while a case was still pending. They said they got the draft opinion from, quote, a person familiar with the court's proceeding. <laughs> how, about, how long do you think that uh, particular moniker was workshopped inside Politico headquarters? Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, a lot a lot of odd parsing of of, of words in this one throughout the media. What was your initial reaction to the journalism part of the story? Oh man, this is a big question. Okay, um, one, I mean, obviously, it, it, a lot of people were pointing at the New York Times. That was the first place that I, you know, the first place that, that I looked. The first place I had a big reaction to, and we we talked about it some. But that the story was immediately framed about a, as a journalism story. You know, this is one of the most consequential political and social stories of our lifetimes. And it was being, and if you looked at NewYorkTimes.com, you would have thought it was a story about the ethics of a leak or the, the mechanics of a leak or, you know, something like, I mean, it, it was not, the subject was sort of secondary to, to the journalistic aspect to it. I mean, just front and center. I mean, it, but so. Uh, and can I ask a question about that real quick? Yeah. Was that just because everyone was caught so flat footed mm -hmm. in the moment by this story that we're relying on Politico's scoop at this point? Yeah. Because, you know, like most of the time when we have a big political scoop, it's something that let's say in six months, somebody says, Donald Trump is going to run for president again in 2024, per my sources. Sure. 20 seconds later, another reporter says, I can confirm that Donald Trump is running for president. Maggie Haberman had it first. That's mm -hmm. how it usually works. Yeah. This was like, whoa, what? Yeah. And they have the 98-page <laughs> draft opinion. Mm -hmm. 
it was almost as if all of America's news organizations, in addition to shitting major bricks on Monday, and you know that was happening, mm-hmm. were just saying, what is this? And trying to get their minds around it. So they started thinking about, you know, they were, and, and also, by the way, we're just aggregating a Politico story. Sure. When I looked at the New York Times website, it was not confirmed yeah. by their own sources. So they're saying Politico says this, and we almost have to keep the distance in. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of conversations to be had, and we've had them a million times about, you know, what, it, what journalism's responsibility and when it comes to breaking news in the internet era, right? But I think it's totally fine just to have like a brief aggregation of the Politico story with Politico says, and then, you know, a note that we'll be updating this page or, you know what I mean? Because that's, you, you have to have the headline uh, and something that follows, but but in the meantime, I think people will be slightly understanding. I mean, you do have to go through a lot of information to really write a comprehensive piece about it, but it doesn't need to be the piece about the, you know, about how the, how the piece, how the, how the, how the, the sausage was made. Right. I mean, for one thing, and we don't need to get too in the weeds, but you know, there's a, a lot of people were passing around this Twitter thread by Jonathan Peters who's a university of Georgia law professor about all the times when there've been functionally been leaks from the Supreme court dating back to like the founding of our nation, um, and you have to reading that you realize you have to slice it, slice the definition pretty thinly to, to, to say that this was, you know, a one-off, you know, one of one sort of situation. And there was also, I mean, if you want to get into the journalism of it, there's also pretty compelling evidence that the wall street journal editorial board also had a copy of this decision a week before it was leaked by Politico. Right. I mean, they, they were, there were, there was an op-ed for, or there was a, you know, a piece from the editors that in retrospect looks pretty pretty knowing if they had if they weren't actually in the loop on any of this right talking about the i mean actually addressing the uh, the, the the you know the the different the, the the factions and the and the the writers of the the writer you know whatever i mean they they seem to know what was going on and if you take it at face value that that happened and i'm not saying it necessarily did but you know you can look back and you can trace that back to previous op-eds and places like the journal and the yes. national review and stuff like that that seem to have the same amount of foreknowledge of what might just happen um as a way of sort of working the refs you know i mean just like writing these things so you know the, whether or not it was just a uh, one of a kind leak I, I don't think that really matters particularly but i do think that it's um you know, I think that the mo- the more important, I mean, the more interesting story is not just is is the is that that a, comp- a, a an institution like New York Times could be blinded to the sort of significance of it right off the bat because they're so sort of preoccupied with that piece of it. Of course, the other side of that coin is the sort of Fox News perspective, which is that they're entirely focused on on pre-demonizing whatever presumed liberal it was that leaked this, like, you know, basically just like warming up the shackles yeah. to like, you know, march whoever did it off to Gitmo. Like it's, it's, um, and, and obviously it's like, they don't, you know, there've been a lot of guesses, a lot of theorizing about who might've done this in either direction. And I think that, you know, for whatever it's worth, I think the arguments of a, of a conservative person doing it are, are pretty compelling, you know, at least as compelling as the idea of a liberal doing it. But I don't think that's really the calculus. I think for Fox, it's finding the angle about which to be outraged, you know, and sort of progressing from there. Or changing the politics, you know. And which have, we, changing it away from being about politics? Is that mm-hmm. what you mean? Yeah, yeah because, well, like because the politics a, might be dicey here. Yeah. And we know this. We It's not just Fox. It's elected Republicans. Mm-hmm. We don't want to talk about, like, 
we don't want to talk about the politics of what this would do because that might be bad for us or at least uncertain for us. We want to talk about the evil media and the moles inside the Supreme Court who are leaking this decision. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is an interesting conversation, and I could probably do a whole hour on competing theories, but I guess just the basic, the base, the broad strokes are that you know, a liberal person would have done it, be it a clerk or whoever else had access to it. A liberal person would have done it to to create the outrage that might lead to conservative justice changing their mind, you know, and and going back on the idea on the on their decision to help overturn Roe. The the other side would be that that these decisions, I mean, these you know, this wasn't a final alignment, right? These sort of like draft decisions are written. We don't know what the final decisions the judges would have made, the, the justices would have made, would have been. But what? But if you're a, if you're a conservative, you leak it to lock them in, right? It's like yes. it's one it's one thing if you're. Neil Gorsuch to be part of, uh, you know, to, to be worried about the outrage from liberals or just the masses in general that you were part of doing this. Now you risk being even more of a pariah to your own, well, constituency is not the right word. They're not elected, but you know what I mean, to, to, to the conservative side for being seen to switch sides, right? To be- uh, We had this locked up. To be a, Dave, uh, to be a and suitor And then you went wobbly yeah. in the two months between- the draft leaking and the opinion actually being handed down. Yeah, formally. and there's a, there's also a, a much more sort of baseline piece of why would a Republican or a conservative person leak it, which is to sort of like you actually sort of blunt the outrage, right? Rather than there be a straight up you know march on Washington on the day the decision comes down. Now it's like we get to spread this out over four months, you know, this sort of and the out, and then when it actually happens, it'll be less of a big deal. You know, that's a little bit of game theory that I'm not quite sure I buy into. I mean, whoever did it. It, it was obviously a very personal decision. I don't know if it was like a, a hero complex on either side or what, but there was, I mean, it's, it is unusual enough that there had to be there a lot of factors involved, right? But I do think that the one thing that nobody was really talking about on day one that I think that's going to be, that's going to end up being probably the more, the more active result of all of this. I mean, we'll see. I, mean, I guess it's wishful thinking on my part, but the thing that no one was really expecting was that like all these Republican legislatures were going to, immediately like preemptively pass laws that are so far beyond the pale of any rational argument that the Supreme Court would have made in favor of striking down Roe, right? I mean, like the like the the performatively level-headed argument is we'll leave it to the states to decide and they will reflect the will of the people and everything will be fine. Right. I mean that's that's what they would have at least pretended to argue. And then all these, you know, Republican legislators are are trying to pass like no abortion under any circumstances bills, so they'll have them on the books the moment that the Supreme Court verdict comes out. And it might actually, it wouldn't shock me if it if, if that if that actually affected the the way that the the, the verdict actually came down, because you can't say you can't just do this little hand wave like Roe versus Wade was 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 decided incorrectly, but this is really not that big of a deal. You know, which is what, again, they would presumably be trying to put it to get across when everybody sees that what's waiting is a catastrophe. So, I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a sad, sad state of affairs, and um, I really am. I struggle to see any any positive way forward, even if that that were to happen. My old boss and spiritual advisor Jack Schaefer, also of Politico tackled the question of, so why isn't the Supreme Court covered like this more often? That's a good question. He says, the court has long occupied a sacred and mythic place in the national consciousness, a place that that the court itself has cultivated. 
Although the justices are political appointees, the court pretends to rise above politics. It conducts its work under a veil and depends on the press to fetishize the mysteries of the temple. All true. Schaefer continues, would Congress scream murder if one of its bills under consideration leaked to the press? Of course not. Its draft legislation gets aired all the time. Dot, Mm -hmm. dot, dot. The court has long feared that if a nation knew how its decisions come together, if its members dared to wear human faces, if it appeared to as anything but a sacred tribunal, its decisions would carry less weight. It's that easy to lose the mystique built up for centuries. The Politico piece reveals a court decision in process as a purely political document that aligns five conservatives against the court's liberals and presumably the chief justice. That accurate portrayal might take decades for the court's mythmakers to erase. Well, I'm not sure that it's possible, regardless of how this comes down. I mean, I think there's a million different factors that go into it, but clearly the mythology of the Supreme Court has been taking hits left and right for the past 15 years longer, I guess. But, it, but Like a lot of other institutions in America, to be yeah, fair. But it's, but, it, but it's been politicized, and I don't mean that, and I don't, I don't, I'm not even taking a side when I say this, but you know, the degree to which confirmation hearings have become political showpieces for politicians on both sides, and, um, and, you know, to, I, I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think. I think Jack's right on the money. But I do think that if like everybody's vested interests were in maintaining the sort of mythical, uh, you know, Mount Olympus stature of the Supreme Court, they could. They they they've done a million. I mean, a million things to 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 make that impossible or implausible. Um, once you make it, once you make anybody's confirmation into a political situation, then it sort of like it brings it down to the to the mortal dirt, you know, and and that's not. It's it's. It's just never. It can't be treated any. I mean, if it, listen, you can either have, you can either have, you know, the smoke coming out of the chimney, and God elects a new pope, or you can just, you know, just like have the ballots out there for everybody to see on national television. You know, you know, there's really not a lot of room in between, and and clearly the choice has been, I mean, made over and over again to to show us the ballots. You know, I mean, and that's to say nothing of the fact that. <clears throat> how many stories and books have been written over the past couple of decades about the conservative project to get to this point. You know, I mean, it's, it's been, this has been part of our conversation for a long time. So it's not, it's, it's, it can't be, it can't be regardless of the verdict. It can't be seen as some sort of, you know, otherworldly magical decision (laughs) from, you know, the America's founders speaking from the grave. Uh, one more item before we end here. Brett Anthony Collette, longtime listener to this podcast, asks an important question for Shoemaker and I. Can a can I get a ruling on how many colons can be used in a book title? Oh, Jesus Christ. Find something I'm you, you really want to get me more worked up after that last segment. <laughs> um he points to a book from 2020. Oh, good. Let me find that was what called you're talking about. The Office Colon. The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s, colon, An Oral History. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. The answer is one. The, how many, how many <laughs> colons? The answer is one, and it's the one that, sits, that separates the title from the subtitle. This is not complicated math, right? There are exceptions to the rule, but they will be exceptions that prove the rule, just like anything else. Um. You can, you know, listen, you can definitely work in an M dash into the subtitle. You know, you can, de- and, and there, I guess I will make exceptions for technically 
I mean, for first, I guess if there are like copy editor decision colons that go in the end, obviously anything that's built into some weird syntax that works, but no, you can't have sub, 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 subtitles. You can't just keep, you can't do that. And if you, and it's the same thing as when I used to do book covers, and this is why I'm obviously persnickety about it, but if you can't figure out how to title your book with a title and a subtitle and only one colon, then you might not know what the book's about. <laughs> and if you don't know what the book's about, you might not, sh- you, you, you might, you, you might not, uh, you might shouldn't publish it. Um, so it's a, uh, you know, I, I understand how you get in these situations. This stuff happens all the time. There's 50 competing voices. You find, you go through, so what feels like a hundred heartbreaking meetings trying to get the title and the subtitle just right. And then, your Barnes and Noble buyer comes in and they're just like, we're only going to take this if you can work X, Y, and Z into the subtitle because otherwise no one's going to buy it. And then instead of actually like, you can't change the book at that point. So you just start tag, you just start gluing things on, you know, I mean, it's, there's, there are, there are rational reasons as to why this happens, but come on, man. Well, that's the original sin, isn't it? What comes after the first colon? Because we went from a world where you would have book with a cool title and maybe a subtitle to book with a cool title, colon, headline rule of three. Mm-hmm. Something, something, and the semicolon that changed well, the world. Again, it, it always, it always overstated. It's always written in exactly the same way. It always, it always takes like a narrow historical event and tries to make it the singular historical event whether it's a book about a fish or whatever it is like there's just that's the original problem here to me you might as well take two or three colons after that because mm-hmm. i've already pissed off by the first colon yes and you know yeah. why i'm really pissed off is because when people write about the book they have to do the whole title every time yeah. it's just called no the book is just called this yes this is a subtitle this is just Extra, as you say, mostly well, okay, for Barnes right. and so Noble. Right point, the subtitle is now intrinsically linked to the part of the book. There, by the way, there is a third category in book publishing. It's called a reading line. There, if there are words on the cover that don't that that are that, oh. that are separate from the subtitle, if you're just like if you see Tell a book, and it, if there if you pick up a book and it's just like like there, it's just like you know whatever uh, fire seventeen ninety two yeah or if it's just like. The best-selling book from the writer of whatever, or something that's even more that, that explains the book. You know, if it's, there's a title and a subtitle, and then they just throw on another thing that's functionally like a ad sticker that's just like the ABCs of the Office or something like that. Like there, there can be a separate category called a reading line that can really be whatever you want. And the only distinction is that doesn't show up in like a a, a search. You know, when you're like trying to locate the book in the bookstore, it's just a separate piece of copy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think I think that, I mean, listen. We, I wish it was just a title. Do we do we need the subtitle? I guess I guess for nonfiction, <laughs> you often need the subtitle. Yeah. But I'm suddenly pro reading line because that reminds me of a movie poster. Two best friends, one, you know, one world war. Right. And then you just get. Be, it's way, just it's don't just even get setup. me started on the movie poster. That's my that's my biggest pet peeve in all of book publishing is that like people make fun of movie posters when it's just like where they have weird clipped quotes that don't really reflect their review or that it's just like from the people that brought you the office but really it's just like a dude who worked in catering at the office book publishing needs to do more of that they need that they that's as 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 funny as that is in some in some tv and movie stuff book publishing is just too too proud and fancy to do any of it 
The guy who who edited the Da Vinci Code 20 years ago was paid like his next book was the biggest thing inside of publishing that we had seen in forever. The, the next book that editor had chosen. And when it came out, there were stacks to the ceiling in every Barnes and Noble, and nobody bought it because nobody knew it had anything to do with the Da Vinci Code. Right? How like how did you not put from the editor of the Da Vinci Code on the front of that book? You know, it was it's it's crazy the way book publishing works. Can you imagine what Dave and I are like at a bar? <laughs> are we not at a bar right now? <laughs> it's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. All right. Thursday's headline about a school district that no longer gives failing grades was no F's given. Today's headline comes from listener Nice Guy Eamon. It's from the Irish Sun. Amazing story from Ukraine, David. Bono and The Edge, of course, from U2, played a surprise concert in a subway in Kiev. One of those subways that is functioning as a bomb shelter right now. Mm-hmm. So we've got Bono, we've got The Edge. During war in Ukraine, I'm going to ask you to think of U2 album titles. What oh, was the no. Irish Sun strained pun headline? Um... The Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum. Oh, uh, is it a Rattle and Hum one? Mm, keep going. Um, you got the list in front of you? No. Uh, <laughs> here, maybe I should. That's why I'm at Joshua Tree. Um, this is obviously my. I'm stuck in my my youth. Um, yeah, a little, uh, well, we're gonna move forward in oh, time here. Oh, what was the first one? Oh, it's not Octung Baby. That would be a good one. Um, uh, okay, let me look. Uh, more recent songs of innocence uh, how to mm-hmm. dismantle an atomic bomb i'm reading now um all that you can't leave behind oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, here we go all that you all that you what in the world all <laughs> what that, city are we in all that, that you can't keeve behind all that you can't keeve behind oh my god that's so crazy <laughs> I am also advised that the Irish Mirror used the headline "Battle and Hum." See, that's good. See that that I told I, I I will co-sign that one. We were spreading around the YouTube puns. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. I'm coming up later in the week, David, with a surprise guest. Should we let people try to guess the surprise guest? Yes. Okay. Here's the rules: DMs only. No Twitter replies. I only accept DMs. Anybody guesses it. First person to guess it gets a book from the Alex Trebek estate. Woo. For me and David Schumann. That's big. Plus, David and I are back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, 
You don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. 